I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many performers, designers, directors, music directors, choreographers, stage crew members, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. My guest today is Chris Kukul, a New York City-based orchestrator, arranger, music director, and composer. Currently, he is music supervisor, conductor, and orchestrator for Broadway's Tony-nominated Beetlejuice the Musical. Other recent projects include In the Green at Lincoln Center, David Byrne's Joan of Arc at the Public Theater, a remounting of Elizabeth Swatos' Run Runaways at New York City Center, The Aeneid with music by Duncan Sheik, and many other works at Playwrights Horizons, The Vineyard, New York Theater Workshop, The Atlantic, The Flea, La Mama, Joe's Pub, 54 Below, Birdland, The Cherry Lane, and The Lucille Lortel. His work has also been featured at various regional theaters across the country, and for 10 seasons, he served as the resident music director for the Williamstown Theater Festival, where among other things, he directed the legendary late night cabarets, featuring iconic performers, including Renee Fleming, Kathleen Turner, Allison Jenny, Tyne Daly, David Hyde Pierce, Judy Kuhn, Kelly O'Hara, Philippa Sue, Renee Elise Goldsberry, and many others. He began his career working for musical theater icon Elizabeth Swatos and has committed to keeping her legacy alive. He recently arranged, orchestrated, and conducted Lincoln Center's American Songbook, The Music of Elizabeth Swatos. Chris is a graduate of NYU Tisch School of the Arts, and he has taught at Tisch Playwrights Horizons Theater School, the New School, Duke University, Columbia University, and Queens College. Hi, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us on American Theatre Artists Online. We're so excited to have a music director and composer and conductor on our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Yeah, you're the first. So, you know, you get to set the, the bar for everyone else. <laughs> so um, thanks for doing this. And, and where are you talking to us from? Um, I'm actually in Denver, Colorado at the moment. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. I think a little south of I have family out here, so I'm, I'm taking some time in, in the West and doing a little traveling around. Oh, good for you. And how are you holding up during this, um, you know, this quarantine time and everything that's happened? Did you, did you decide, I know you were working on a show on Broadway, so did you take a pause or obviously like the rest of us or? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, the, the, the Broadway show Beetlejuice, we just stopped right in the middle of March and, that, and just everything, um, like a weird sci-fi movie was put on hold and the theaters are all just sitting there with all of our stuff inside of them. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I had, you know, three or four other shows that were 
about to get going over the spring and the summer and the fall, and they've all been put on hold. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's a weird moment that we're all living through in the theater. Yeah, for sure. And especially those of you that were working on shows, you know, I've spoken to a few different people throughout um, this, this podcast that were working, were in the middle of in rehearsal or actually had a show yeah. up and were working on a show on Broadway or off Broadway or regionally. And it's really disturbing, isn't it? It just kind of feels like a, a weird pause. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, if you had told us a year ago that, that it was even possible to just stop everything, no one would have believed you, right. you know? And then here we are, right, six months yeah. later, and we're all still right. dealing with this. Well, so, but how did you first approach theater? Like, was, was how did you get your start in theater? Were you always, a, because, you know, you, you are in, music supervisor, director, conductor, you, you, orchestrator. You do, a lot of what you do in theater is around music. Were you more a music student first or theater? Or how did you get involved with this wonderful profession? Well, I sort of did, did both side by side. I mean, I guess I really, high school was the time when I, um, f- f- I mean, I guess probably junior high too, but high school really, I was heavily involved in the theater department and also in the choral department. So mm. my first, um, my entry into music actually was choral singing, um, which I loved. Choral meaning the choir and also the show choir, very important. Um, and I played the piano um, growing up, so uh, but I, but it was never a focus of mine. You know, I never considered myself a pianist or, or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so then when I went to college, I went to NYU and I was a, a theater major, an acting major, um, through. Uh, Playwrights Horizons has a program at NYU, and they have like a kind of a broad range of studies. So if you're a student of playwrights, you study um, acting and directing and design, and they give you kind of a a big wash of of it all, which was a good place for me to kind of figure out my way in. Um, I ended up focusing on musical theater performance, and then because I could play the piano, my free time I would play the piano for my friends you know we would like accompany my we'd go in practice rooms and I, they would sing and I would play and yeah, you were you were um, probably popular so both I remember. kind of happened simultaneously yeah yeah you were probably popular because people in theater programs who can play the piano are, are much you know much needed <laughs> sought after yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right exactly um and then I, you know I did a couple of plays right after college, uh, but I got hired to play, to accompany a class at NYU. Um, and then from there, got a job um, music directing at a summer camp. Mm. And um, that was like my first job as a music director, and I uh, just loved it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so then I came back to the city. Um, and interestingly enough, I did a show um, at the public a few years ago uh, that was a musical version of Joan of Arc that David Byrne wrote. Oh. Um, and the woman who played Joan of Arc is an actress named Joe Lampert, who was in that summer camp starring as Miss Hannigan in Annie at 11 years old. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> wow. music director. Full circle. Job. Wow. That's nice. Full circle. Full circle. Oh. Um, yeah. So then, so yeah. So then um, I, I, uh, uh, came back from that camp and started uh, working with a, a composer and director named Elizabeth Suedos. Um And that was really when I f- fully embraced just b- being a music director. And, and that was the path that I was on and, and continued on that path to, right. till, till, till COVID. <laughs> right. Well, yes. And that's, that I know many years between, but, but so it's, so you like many people approach theater first as a performer Piano right. player, singer, music theater, right? And then it became, Correct. and then it moved. And and so as I look through 
your resume and I looked on your website and the stuff that you've done, which is pretty impressive, uh, the wide range of things that you've done, um, I see several words that pop out. Orchestrator, arranger, music director, composer, conductor. Um, for those of us who aren't like super well-versed in music and what those all mean, I know a lot of people know some of the more you know, popular director, choreographer, music director, right. that part we know, but orchestrator, arranger, composer, conductor, what are the differences for those who might be unfamiliar with what each of those jobs entails? And, and is there one that you prefer or find more challenging or, you know, a brief, I know it's a lot to ask, but what yeah, yeah, no, no. Run down? for sure. And it is a little, it is a little, the lines sometimes are a little blurred. Sure. Um, so I'll kind of talk you through what each one is individually, understanding that sometimes people do all of those things or none of those things or some of those things. Right. Um, sure. But so, so, okay. So I, it starts with the composer, the composer obviously writes the music, okay. um, which is the melody and the, the chord structure and, and, and the songs. And, and, and sometimes they write the lyrics as well. Sometimes there's a lyricist, but that is the, the raw piece of writing that is then given to an arranger and that arranger then deals with kind of the big picture of what the song is, meaning what is, um, you know, what are the highs and the lows? What's the main texture of it? Where where do the changes happen? Are there key changes? That sort of stuff. Now, again, sometimes those decisions have already been made by the composer. So sometimes the composer functions as an arranger. Um, so once that, once the sort of template of the song is done, mm -hmm. then the orchestrator takes it and takes that song and, and creates all the parts for the instruments that are going to play it. Wait, and that, you, mean, you mean the composer doesn't do all of that himself? <laughs> depends. Not, no, no, but a lot of us think that. A lot of us think yeah. that the composer just right there at the piano playing everything, all the different parts, which is really crazy, right? But that's what yeah. some people think. I mean, there are, there are some, for sure, there are some. I mean, Jason Robert Brown does his orchestrations, and they're spectacular. Right, but it's, um, a, it's a process, as you said. It starts with composing the music. Exactly. That could be on, a, exactly. on an instrument, piano in your case, I guess. Or, that's right. Right, that's okay, right. sorry, keep going. So composer, arranger, then orchestrator. Yeah. Um, and then once all of that is done, the music director is the person who um, brings that composition to life by teaching the actors, teaching the um, uh, the musicians mm -hmm. um, and really bringing the song to life and finding all the, the detail work in it and how it matches with the play and the, the storytelling and, and all of that. Getting it um, off the, the page. Exactly, exactly. And the music director also uh, runs rehearsals and often conducts the show, often plays the show. Um, and they are the person that is responsible for maintaining the musical life of the show um, in addition to, to creating it. Um, so, yeah, that, is that all of them? Yeah, I think that's, that's all. all. I mean, so it gets to con now. Well, we, you didn't mention conductor. So most people know what a conductor does, but I, it sounds obvious. Yeah. But sometimes the conductor is also the music. The music director is also the conductor. That's right. Usually that's the case. Sometimes, you know, you can be the music director of a show um, and there can be a separate conductor, you know, and, or, or you've music directed a show and then you leave the show. And um, even though the kind of like the, the creation part of the music direction work is done, then the conductor is, 
now taking over and, and maintaining the show and, and running the show and doing all of those duties. Wow. So explain something to me. This is a question I've always had, and this is me as someone yeah. who's been yeah. doing musical theater for 30 years and performing in musical theater, but not part of any, you know, other than learning music as an actor and, and as a choreographer, I've never really created music myself. But for example, I always really loved the dance, as a dancer, the dance arrangements in Gypsy. With it, to me, they're some of the best dance arrangements in a show I've ever danced in. And then I go to find out years later that John Kander was the dance arranger for Gypsy, for Julie Stein and Gypsy. I did not know that. And it all came together for me. And that's made me start thinking, wait, so the job of a dance arranger is pretty, it's a pretty important job. Yes, it is. So it they is. take the melody have you done this? You take the melody and then kind of expand on it, right? And 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 for the dance breaks and the big dance numbers. That, that's right. And and the dance arranger works really closely with the choreographer, so they they really develop those those musical sequences together. Um, uh, for example, on Beetlejuice, we have a separate dance arranger, David Dabin, who's incredibly talented. Mm. Um, Ian, our choreographer, Connor Gallagher. Um, have worked together for many years. So they would do workshops with dancers um, and they would just spend time in the room and they would bounce ideas off of each other. Um, and it really becomes a, its, own, its own process. Right. And then those of us that are doing revivals of said show once the show happens, we're yeah. given the music with those dance arrangements already yeah. in there and we're kind of stuck. But then I, it's, you know, what I love doing as a choreographer is listen and listen and listen. And then I go, wait a minute, there's a transition here. They wrote this right. music in here because to get people from point A to point B. It's not really that they're trying to make a musical point. They're just, it's practical. They had to get people off the stage. So that it, gives, it gives me the clues as a choreographer. If I listen to the arranger, I know how to stage the show. That's right. That's right. Oh, I love it. It's all coming together for me. I don't know if people listening are, are as excited about it as I am. But so talk a little bit more about collaboration, because you've just mentioned a bunch of different things about how the arranger works with the, the composer and the music director, which is fascinating. You just gave some real life examples on Beetlejuice. But, you know, people have talked a lot about the collaboration between director and choreographer. You hear that a lot in a musical and sometimes they become the same person. But you don't often hear too much in interviews or TV shows or, or any sort of media about the collaboration between music director and director or music director and choreographer. So what is that like? And what does a good collaborative experience mean for you? And what do you need and want from your creative collaborators? Well, it really is, it really is a triangle between the director, choreographer, and music director. I mean, the, those three roles build the show together mm -hmm. um and uh i, I mean I per personally I, I work on shows that are, are are new so i spend a lot of time in development mm -hmm. um and you know music tells the story and the director is telling the story and and we have to work together to figure out where where the, the um where the events are and where the things change and how the music helps create that moment mm -hmm. and take us to the next moment um and you know even like you know the simple thing like getting in in and outs of songs and and underscoring and transitional music and all of that stuff especially now music musical theater has become so cinematic and mm. um you know it was you know 50s and 60s it was a little you know there would be a a song and then a book scene and then a 
a small transition and there weren't like sequences, you know, and now, you know, the musicals have sequences that are very complicated and yeah. text gets woven in and out of the songs and the scenes. And yeah. um, it's amazing. I, I mean, I love it. And I love that work. And that is all um, done in conjunction with the people in the room. You know, we right. figure that stuff out as we're working on it. Yeah. And it's not easy. And you know, what's funny is that oh. I noticed that they're doing that to old musicals now. So they're going back and taking musicals written yeah. in the 50s and 60s that were not meant to have all this sort of scenic kind of sequencing and they're right. redoing them so they do. And I'm always like, wait, that's not the way they were written. I mean, it's great, but you could go the easy route and just do the front of the curtain number. <laughs> just do it. That's true. That's true. That's, it. that's right. But they have to move. Um, Everything has to sort of be integrated these days, right? The set, the yeah. projection, the music, the the dancing, it all kind of has to flow together. Yeah. And everything is becoming so automated and everything is tied with computers and tracks and it's you know it's becoming a you know a different a different beast for sure. Right. And so do you often find yourself aside from that period where you're obviously if you're music directing a show that you're working with the actors to teach them the music to teach them the harmonies to teach them all that stuff that we think about um, the music and then do you spend a lot of time in a rehearsal room with the director and the choreographer like you said hashing out like is that most of the time hashing out what a number is going to look like when you're working on a new show absolutely I mean well you know the truth is that you know there the rehearsal period of a show is so condensed that you try to front load all of that work into labs and workshops. Mm -hmm. um, and there are two, you know, there's the kind of lab or workshop that's a presentation for producers, uh, which usually is done in a week. You try to put the whole show together, you read the show, but there are the other labs where there's no performance element where it's just, you know, you might spend two weeks working on three numbers in a room with people who may or may not even be in the show. Um, and those are low pressure situations where you really spend the time investigating the numbers and figure planning everything out. And, and those are the, that's the best because you don't have to like worry about cramming everything in. You really like do the detail work and there's, there isn't the pressure to do it. It is just, it's purely creative and exciting and great. Oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, putting on a new Broadway musical is people don't realize how much of a complicated effort that is and how many yeah. moving pieces there are. So to have that space, absolutely. So can you talk to us about a particular project or two that you've done that you were really happy about? And it doesn't, you know, we can talk more about Beetlejuice in, in a second. But what what about um, anything that you really worked on that you were really happy about that exemplified for you this kind of collaboration and that also was where you were able to bring yourself fully to the table and what 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 about them was special to you well i actually just did a um i just released an album that was an it's an anthology mm -hmm. album um of the composer elizabeth suedos who i talked about earlier who um is the person that i started my career with um and i worked with with Liz for almost 15 years. She passed away in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and with her, I, you know, when I started with her, I didn't know what I was doing, but she believed in me. So mm -hmm. I just assumed I knew what I was doing. And then <laughs> she it gave kind me of the happened. But, yeah. um, and she didn't, she didn't play the piano. So she would write basic, you know, melodies and mm -hmm. chords. And so, through her, I had just had to learn how to be an orchestrator and an arranger and a music director. And it was like sink or swim right away. And she was always working on a thousand things. Um, and so I had to be like 
uh, fast and prolific mm-hmm. and um, thorough. And uh, yeah. it took a while, but um, you know, I, I figured it out eventually. <laughs> um, so anyway, so uh, we just released an, an anthology album celebrating her life's work um that is like it's about 19 tracks of of uh material that she's she'd written over her 40-year career from broadway to off-broadway to film um and the the performers on the album are all people who sort of represent um the the new generation of uh, avant-garde musical theater writers and performers, um, you know, people who are a part of Town and Natasha Pierre and Oklahoma. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it's kind of an amazing window into the current musical theater. Um, there are composers on it, meaning Michael R. Jackson and the Banksons and Grace McLean and Dave Malloy, and they all sing on it. And, um, so that's half of them. And the other half are performers like Amber Gray and Damon Dono and Ali Stroker. And, oh, wow. um, it's a, it's a pretty astounding group of people. And, um, everybody had brings their own thing to each song. And so each song is a little event unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this album uh, is Lincoln Center's American Songbook. Is that the title? The music. No, it's actually called, it's called the Liz Suedos Project. The Liz Suedos. Uh, Sorry, I got the wrong. The name. American Songbook was a was a concert we did oh. at Lincoln Center after Liz passed away, um, and then this album is part of a series that Ghostlight is doing. They they did the Jonathan Larson Project, um, and now this is the Liz Suedos Project. So they're doing uh, musical theater composers who have passed away in a celebration of you know keeping their their work alive and out there for things that hadn't been recorded wow Uh, and you said 19 tracks so this is available now can people download it on itunes and apple or all the different places yeah it's on it's on all the platforms it's on the the ghostlight um website it's on uh my website it's everywhere you know um the hard copy i think comes out in october um Nice, but yeah, but I'm really, but I'm really proud of it. Especially, you know, having had such a long relationship with a mentor and collaborator, mm-hmm. to then be able to um, celebrate them and and hopefully continue their their legacy is a really uh, humbling and exciting opportunity. What a wonderful thing to be able to do! Yes, and it must have been a very special um, yeah. event for you and project for you. Now, you on this um, album, did you do the arrangements orchestration did you do that whole thing we were just talking about did you do you did all of it also you also did what sorry what was the last part you rounded uh, also a co-producer on the album co-producer well. so yeah and then yeah. so that that requires a lot more time and energy even than yeah. than all those other wow well clearly it's it's near and dear to your heart and you want to yeah. um, maintain you worked with elizabeth suedos for 50, almost 15 years that's a long time yeah. And so she's counting on you to continue, continue her, her work, and you're doing that. That's, that's true. Yeah, that's that's got to be. That's got to feel good. So, yeah. um, what about? <clears throat> I, I'm just curious because I read this in your, your um, on your website and in your resume that uh, for ten seasons you worked at Williamstown Theater Festival. This is fascinating to me. Um, and you worked and you were, you directed the legendary late night cabarets. Um, and then there's a list of really amazing people right after that, right? Including Kathleen yeah. Turner, Allison Janney, Tyne Daly, David Hyde Pierce, Judy Kuhn. My brain was exploding as I was reading and thinking, <laughs> the, the, you must have some fun stories or tidbits from those projects. Well, Williamstown is kind of a, this special little nugget 
of the way summer theater used to be. Um, you know, when, uh, when in the 50s and 60s, when people would leave New York in the summers and, and all these famous people would go do summer stock and summer theaters, um, and also Hollywood, like TV would shut down in the summers because mm-hmm. there were actual seasons. That none of that exists anymore. Broadway continues through the summer. TV is all year round. It, but but Williamstown has able to be that place where um, very famous actors still go and do off the radar summer theater. Amazing. Uh, it, it really is, and it's really like a magical um, little brigadoon up in the Berkshires. Um, and they do these cabarets that have been happening since the sixties. Um, where uh, they happen late at night after the shows. Um, they've happened all over town, but the past you know ten or fifteen years have been in a, a church, um, and people just do the things that they would be unwilling to do in real life. You know, I had what Renee Fleming got up on that stage and saying "Lean on me," like oh, things like that. Nice. that never happen in the real world. Would yeah. happen in that place. It was a very magical, special, um, special thing do you have um, any fun stories do you have any like things that you can share that are fun that that you hadn't really shared until now that you can share in public? Um, <laughs> well there are inappropriate stories that i won't <laughs> share um hey, it's okay uh, we're not pg we're we're we're, at our ra- <laughs> we're an r-rated podcast people have cursed and everything on here but um uh, i'm just wondering if you have anything interesting i mean those are some pretty interesting personalities right I no, mean, they are there are, there are yeah um, I mean, it could be a fun story that's not, it doesn't have to be naughty. <laughs> well, I remember Kathleen Turner, she was like, we were trying to figure out what she was going to sing. And, mm-hmm. you know, Kathleen Turner has that very deep, sexy like voice, husky, right? yeah, voice. And so she was like, you know, I, th- I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it'd be really great if I sang Old Man River. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and she ended up not doing it for other reasons, but I just oh, her sure. saying that, and that was her suggestion for herself. I was like, <laughs> you... You know you. You are my hero. She's great. She's quite a personality. I just um, listened to her um, biography, autobiography, a while back because she narrates herself on audio. And she and I both grew up over, we're Americans who went to American schools overseas in Latin America. So I have a lot in, I I could understand her very well, which is interesting. So she must have been a joy to work with uh, and a lot of fun. And Alice yeah. and Jenny and Tyne Daly. I mean, I'm sitting here reading these just so jealous. Yeah. I'd love to just be in the room with you working with them on the piano. Oh, well, and they're all like, they're, they're, it was just because it, there was no pressure. Right. It sure. was just fun. Everybody fun. is, there were no like divas, you know, there were, I mean, well, there were some, but, right. but everyone is just like was, uh, it was like the goof off time. That's great. You know? Yeah, that late yeah. night kind of fun time that actors really let go. I think Alice and Janney sang a duet with John Benjamin Hickey. Oh. And they, uh, I, she definitely forgot the words at some point, so they just started ballroom <laughs> dancing in the middle of it. <laughs> um, it was pretty too. spectacular, yeah. <laughs> She's a tall woman, so... She is. But, um, well, I mean, I'm being a little selfish because that was the the stuff that I wanted to hear about. But you may have another project (laughs) that you'd rather talk about. But that was just reading, listening, listening, uh, reading that and hearing you talk about is really hilarious. Um, And I just wanted to know more about that. Um, Is there any other project that you are feeling, you know, that you want to talk about that is something that that is close to your heart? that um, you feel exemplifies. You may not have been the composer on it, or you may not, it's just something that you think about that collaboration that really worked. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, obviously the current thing is Beetlejuice and I'm really Mm -hmm. proud of it and proud of the, the, how, how the 
um, the property just kind of took off and did develop this amazing fan base and people responded to the music in online ways that nobody expected. Um, How so? What do you mean? Like people reacting on social media, you mean? Yes. I, well, we sort of, for some reason, when TikTok was first starting is when we were kind of first starting oh. and it really took off. And I think it was the, there's one song called Say My Name that's a duet between Lydia and Beetlejuice and there's a lot of back and forth and people loved it on TikTok. They loved it. It lends and itself. It, it lends itself to the TikTok yes. moment. That's cool. Um, yeah. And it really just sort of catapulted um, our presence um, with people outside of New York. Um, we became, I think Playbill listed a, uh, a statistic that was like the top selling albums of the decade. Mm. And when that list came out, our album had been out for three months mm. and other shows had been out for 10 years. Right. Sure. And we were number seven of the decade just in three months. Wow. That's, that's pretty impressive. You certainly, I mean, the show is certainly caught on and not just with, you know, normal music theater aficionados, but I think what's nice about it is it seems to be a, appeal to a younger, broader, audience to bringing in sure. new people to musical theater which is what we need right because you know if our average theater goer is is 70 years old um that's <laughs> that's not good so we have to find new right. and different ways to appeal to the younger generations now i know this was a long process right for beetlejuice it didn't just come out of nowhere um even though beetlejuice yeah. does uh, but the show did it <laughs> uh where yeah. so were you part of this whole process from day one and how long did it take to get to what what um was being shown on broadway well i was a, a part of the process of this version of the show the whole time the, i think alex timbers pitched the idea probably to warner brothers close to 10 years ago wow um and they over a six-year period, they had tried out different writing teams. Um, so there was different book writers, different score writers, um, and they, none of them really felt like the right match um, until they got Anthony King, Scott Brown, and Eddie Perfect. And the three of them um, came on board uh, probably about four years ago now. Um, once they were on board, then I was involved from the first the first read through of that. So the first time actors touched it, um, mm. I, I remember we, I went, my first thing was going to a hotel room where they, Eddie sat at a piano and um, Scott and Anthony read all the parts and they just, for the, for the, like the Warner brothers producers and a couple sure. other people. And they just read the scripts and the songs to us. Wow. Um, and so that was my first, my first day. Um, and then we did many, workshops and labs um, and presentations. Um, we did an out of town in DC in the fall of 2018 at the National. Yeah. Um, and after that, uh, which was a very divisive production. <laughs> why, why, wait, 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 wait. Why was it divisive? Yeah. Well, it was a little uh, edgier and raunchier mm. there. Um, and I think a little, um, a little more abrasive to maybe a musical theater set sensitivity I see. um and also it wasn't really geared for kids ah, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I think a lot of people loved it and lost their minds right for it in dc but a lot of people including some critics were really put turned off by it um so, and, but the, know, movie, that the movie isn't necessarily kid-friendly per se either not. so i wonder why people when they come to see a musical think based on a movie that's not particularly kid-friendly feel the musical yeah. is going to be kid-friendly i never understood that 
Well, I think, well, two things. I think that the, the movie is like what's in people's minds, but they forget that it was also a cartoon for a long time. Oh, that's so cool. that, yeah, that, that cartoon, um, which I think was called Beetlejuice and Lydia, mm-hmm. um, which was in the nineties, uh, was hugely influential. And we actually use part of parts of act two are based on the cartoon, mm-hmm. um, and their relationship in the cartoon. So we definitely use that as part of our um, overlying thing. Sure. Um, but I think that that is why it became like a kind of a family-friendly thing. I see. Um, but, but, you know, and we all loved the show in DC. It was, it was great. We just, you know, had to like just adjust some things. So we did like another lab um, in between D- DC and uh, Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we opened on Broadway. Um and it was still sort of slightly divisive and critically we were divided um and people kind of didn't know what to make of us and then mm. we we ended up uh it wasn't really until we did we were on the we got nominated for all these tony awards which yeah. we were very excited about mm. um and nobody saw coming so it was very exciting and That's then we did our a nice number. boost yeah yeah and then we did our our opening number on the tonys and yes. people kind of went nuts for it and then on the um, tonys am i right so explain this to me for someone who, who yeah. isn't fully familiar with the, all parts of the show. The, oh, that number you did on the Tonys, they had new lyrics for that That's particular right. performance on the Tonys, correct? That, that were contemporary, That's like what was going on in the world at that particular... Did they do that always? Uh, like, do they change it up every week on Broadway? Or did they? No, no, no. no. The, the Broadway lyrics always stayed okay. the same. Okay. We did have new lyrics for the Tonys and for the Macy's Day Parade. Um, <laughs> And I have to say, I mean, Alex Brightman is like, you know, obviously he's an amazing actor, but yes. just his like work ethic is unbelievable. I mean, I, I'm sure you know this, but you know, the weekend of the Tonys is a is a harrowing experience. Yes. And so you do. We had our Saturday night show, mm-hmm. um, which you know we're I get out of the theater at 11 p.m. or something. Sure. The actors all have to be back at the theater at like 4.30 a.m. to get into makeup, mm. to go to Radio City, do a dress rehearsal, come back to the Broadway theater to do a, a matinee, and then go back to Radio City to do the performance in front of millions of people. Yeah, now, imagine, beyond being tired, imagine that actor has to remember two completely set, different sets of lyrics that are very like intricate and detailed and very wordy mm. and go back and forth between the two of them while being exhausted. I mean, mm. it's really a, an astounding feat. Uh, and tell me a little bit more about the composer and lyricist of this show, um, their style, their work, because they're not particularly grounded in musical theater per se, are they? I mean, they're from Australia. One of them's from Australia. Am I right? Well, so yeah. So they're okay. So they're, the book writers, Anthony King and Scott Brown are, they, work a lot in LA. They do a lot of TV writing. They also wrote um, Gutenberg, the musical, which was done in New York in the early 2000s. Um, So I first met them doing that show. Um, And, but the bulk of their writing is TV writing. Um, And then Eddie Perfect, who wrote the, he is, he is Australian. He Mm -hmm. wrote the music and the lyrics. Um, And he is another kind of jack of all trades. He's a, kind of a well-known actor um, in Australia um, and is heavily involved in the Australian theater world and has written several musicals that have been produced in Australia. Um, and so this was his first big like season in, in the, in 
New York and he had two musicals. He wrote actually some of the songs in King Kong and Beetlejuice yeah. in the same. Uh, so he had a, he had a trial by fire, that, that guy. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> but let me tell you, it's, there's something about the show, the parts that I have seen that is unlike anything else on Broadway. Yeah. And I think that's what's wonderful, to have some new infusion of, of some new creativity from elsewhere, be it from the West Coast, be it from the far, yeah. far, far, you know, East in Australia. Yeah. I mean, wherever yeah. it needs to come from to, to reinvigorate and to give us a new, a new infusion, I think, because I think that's, that's fascinating and, and to have a new musical um, totally. with that. And so maybe some of the critics were also reacting to it wasn't what they expected, quote unquote, right? Exactly. I mean, I think the, the proof of that is how Eddie's songs have connected with, with kids around the world. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, um, it, it really has, I mean, he really is, he's very funny. His lyrics are very funny and smart and unexpected. And he also just writes um, great pop songs. I mean, he writes great hooks and yeah. um, they're, they're extremely listenable while also giving you information about character and story, doing all the, the heavy lifting that songs have to do. Right. And so you got to be the, you were the music supervisor, conductor, and orchestrator. Yes. For Beetlejuice. Yeah. So you got to do some of that orchestration, some of that you were talking about earlier of, of sort of imagining in your head how this could sound on a larger, how, how, yeah. how big, how, how many uh, members of the orchestra, of the pit, as we say, in, in, in your show? Um, we have 18. 18. Wonderful. That's yeah. fantastic. By Broadway standards, it's, it's very large. We're very lucky. I, very lucky. I love it. That's great. Now, are you in the theater? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I conducted the show for the whole run. Right, so, so you conduct more... the show, but I mean, some some pits now, there's this argument, some pits are in like another building, which I think is sorry, really sorry, sorry. piped in. <laughs> that, that's true. Do you know what's funny? When they do the Tony Awards, the or this year the orchestra was on 10th Avenue. And, and, Patty, Lu and Patty LuPone had a breakdown, right? That's what I heard. <laughs> well, I mean, she probably did. Yeah. She probably did. She's very unhappy. <laughs> is on the other side of town from Radio City, which yeah. is amazing. How do you do that? But, yeah, but anyway, sorry. Um, you're conducting, so, yeah, so are, you're there every night. We are, but, and we are, um, we do actually use the orchestra pit, yeah. um, which I've been told is the first time that the Winter Garden pit had been used since 42nd Street was there in the 70s. Right, because you had um, Cats and Mamma Mia. Yeah, and back School of Rock. And School of Rock, and, that's right. That's and right. they were all so we have a second room we use both we use the main orchestra pit for the strings and the brass and the reeds yeah. and, and the pianos um and then we have a back room for our drums and percussion and bass and uh guitars so you're standing there uh, traditionally as we think of the conductor do we yeah. see your baton and we see you're doing all your wonderful that's my favorite thing to sometimes to look at the conductor and the, the hand gestures and the the conducting yeah that's yeah, totally that. um and yeah it's visible it's if it's, there's just something about going to a Broadway theater, mm -hmm. seeing a conductor, hearing a, like the orchestra live that is just, it just it can't be matched. And you know, it's something that when I was a little kid, my parents used to take me to see this uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas done by a, a local 
you know, the British school in, in Rio or right. wherever it was. And the conductor <laughs> was this British guy and he would just stand there and he would like, he was running everything, you know? And he just, I just, I, as a little kid, I would just watch him. I just thought this guy's so cool. All the stuff that he can do <laughs> with his hands. He can make all this music with his hands. That's how, yeah, I, right. you know, so I'd love to come see you conduct something sometime so that I can, I can see your style. Cause I know every conductor yeah, has definitely. a slightly different style, but so you're there in the pit with your 18 musicians and you're conducting eight shows a week on Broadway. Um, what happens if you feel sick? Like, is there a night where you're like, oh my God, I just can't believe I have to go do this. I have a sore throat. I have a fever. I mean, do you go anyway or do you, does someone step well, in? So I have, um, I have a, an associate conductor and an assistant conductor oh, and, and both of them um, play keyboards um, and they have, um, so every musician has about five subs in their line if they're, if they have to miss. Sure. Um, so my, so I, and I usually would, I would take notes once mm-hmm. a week. So I, there was always a show that I wouldn't conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I had to, if I was doing another job or something else, so my associate or my assistant, they would, they would then conduct. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's good to know. Cause I always worry about you guys. You're out there on your own. <laughs> and then, so what, <clears throat> so let me ask you a question. This is a little bit yeah. of more of an esoteric question as we're heading towards sort of the, the end of the interview, but how would you like, you know, at, we talked a bit about how broad the Broadway musical is really changing somewhat. And, and people yeah. are, are, we're getting a new infusion of some new, um, new works, new thoughts, new composers, new writers. Um, how would you like to see this this happen, this relationship between music and theater, which is what we're talking about, further develop over the next decade? Like, where do you think we're headed? Not just Broadway. I mean, Broadway's one yeah. piece. Um, but music theater in general, let's talk about this country, regionally, um, anywhere. Like, do you, what would you like to see? Because people talk about the golden age of the 40s right. and 50s. But I feel like there's been a resurgence. I feel like there's a popularity increase. People are buying tickets, or at least prior to, to COVID, you know, ticket yeah. sales were through the roof. What do you think we're going to be on the on the tail end of this, on the other end of this? I, you know, I don't, I really don't know. It's, it's scary to think about. I, I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, exactly what you're saying there, there has seemed, I don't know, it may be, you know, 10 to 20 years ago, there seemed to be a resurgence of musical theater in both TV and films. Um, there were musical movies, there were shows like Glee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that generation has now become people in their 20s and 30s. Um, and so, so musical theater seems less foreign to them. That's a great um, observation. I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, and I think that that shows itself in in the fact that that Lucky Broadway is actually more popular than ever. Yeah. Uh, and I think also the internet helps too because you know with social media, um, it's an event to go see a Broadway show. People like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, people post them, videos of themselves singing, and mm-hmm. and that element that that need is not going anywhere for sure. COVID or or anything that will will always be here. Agreed. Um, I was the only other thing that, and this is like a negative thing, and I don't want to be a negative, but I just, my fear is that we become too, like, technologically dependent, um, and that we lose the humanity of musicians and music, and um, what makes it, what makes theater special and alive is that people are creating it in the moment, Uh, and I, that is the thing that I hope doesn't go away well you know it's expensive right so live music is expensive and it's it's worth it but people sometimes um producers and other people make decisions especially outside of broadway um in other theaters where they 
don't have a lot of money uh, to to not hire union musicians or to not or to not have a large um, group and large orchestra, 18 piece, 16 piece, which is always wonderful. But you're right. It is a different experience. It doesn't feel the same. And um, some of the maybe you're seeing some of this in the orchestrations, too. Uh, Things are orchestrated differently. I mean, for you to be able to orchestrate a show with a 18 piece, uh, 18 pieces, that's got to be much more it's like you have more you know paint in your arsenal more paint brushes right if you just you're told okay it's two pianos a bass and a drum yeah. go <laughs> you know? right well what, what, what ends up happening is that you then put everything on keyboards and the, yeah. the sounds are all fake sounds right and they sound great you know what i mean like it doesn't sound that much different but it just doesn't well you don't have, have strings that. you don't have you know, reads, yeah. you don't, it, it's, it's a totally different feeling. Yeah. And I hope, I agree with you. I hope we don't lose that. What about the different styles of musicals? So Beetlejuice is a book musical, what we would call a book musical, uh-huh. right? Um, with a, you know, a pop, I would say kind of like a pop rock music theater score. I mean, I don't know how you'd, you'd, you'd exemplify it. You probably, you obviously know better than I do. It's a good question. I would think you're right. I would say, yeah, it's definitely a pop rock score, but I will say that there are so many different styles of music within it mm-hmm. um that it kind of uh it kind of crosses a lot of lines which is why mm-hmm. the big orchestra was so useful because we could do obviously the, the the rock songs we could do but we could also do like the the danny elfman-esque cinematic moments that require a big orchestral sound um there are some there's like a, a big broadway uh, 1950s Broadway number, you know, mm-hmm. like all of those different styles can be done authentically as opposed to, um, I, again, using synthesizers to, to, to estimate a style as opposed to really doing the style. Right. And so that such- wide, that wide variety of styles allows you to really play a little bit more. And that's nice that you have the, yeah, the range to totally. be able to do that because, you know, people complain and you hear a lot of critics write and complain about what they call quote unquote, the jukebox musical, close quotes. Right. And I get upset as just a, a, a fan of music theater because one of my favorite composers is Cole Porter. And all I can oh. think of is Anything Goes was such a jukebox musical. I mean, there was I no reason for that, right? Other than to throw a bunch of amazing songs. And most musicals in the yeah. 30s, the very beginning of, you know, 20s and 30s were really, you know, Mu- uh, jukebox musicals so I don't think we need yeah. to like get so angry about them but uh, critics well, seem to think a book musical is is somehow better of better quality true or, right if it's like an original score yeah yeah because sure. they, they want or, and you know in a way that's fine too because for you as a composer I'm sure you want to have the ability to bring a new if you could bring a new show to Broadway of new music right. of your music um, without giving too much away, you may have something already up your sleeve. What what would you want to bring? What kind of style would be your? What would you think would be the Chris Kukul style? Oh, I, I you know I've never been asked that question, and I don't um, I don't know how to answer that because I have done like I, I definitely don't focus on a style. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, you serve them. Uh, you like to serve the material. Maybe you can change according to the material. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what other thing that I will say is that I, I like music that tells you time and place. Mm. Um, so, and I think uh, sometimes musicals do that really, really well. Sometimes they don't do that well um, without naming specifics, but, um, sure. but I find it most exciting when there's an authenticity to um, a time and a culture um, that represents itself in a musical. 
you know, that there's no authenticity to that world. That's what I find really exciting. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Chris, um, we'll all be looking out for your work, uh, not just as <laughs> not just as uh, music supervisor, conductor, orchestrator, but also an arranger. But also, we're going to be looking for your compositions and for your work moving forward. Because I have a okay, feeling, we'll, um, no pressure, but uh, <laughs> I think that I think that you, I'd love to see what a, what a Chris Kukul uh, composed uh, score for a musical sounds. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on American thank Theater you. Artists Online. It's been great talking to you. And we're all hoping that we're going to get back soon and that uh, Beetlejuice yes. will be back on Broadway, um, you know, hopefully next year or as soon as we can. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Bye. Bye.